If you have a Bible, you can open it up to John chapter 2. If you don't, you can uh, take a Bible out of the seat back in front of you and open that up to John chapter 2. Unfortunately, I, you know, I used to be good about having the page number for you, but not working out of my office anymore. I never have a copy of that Bible in front of me, so you'll have to find it. It's toward the back, the fourth book of the Old Testament, page, or New Testament, page 750, 50? 51. Okay, John chapter 2. There's nothing like, there's nothing that I like better than a good party. So when my master announced that we'd be hosting the wedding party for young Matthias and his bride, I was excited. And my fellow servants and I got right to work making the many preparations that needed to take place. Matthias was a good kid. His family was from very humble circumstances, but they were well-respected in our village. That's why it was such a terrible tragedy when the wedding week came and partway through the week, the store of wine dried up. Now, it wasn't a tragedy for us. We provided the space, we helped with the arrangements, but everyone knew that it was the groom's family who supplied the food and the drink. No more wine. What is a wedding without wine? And what kind of family fails to supply enough wine? How shameful. How, what, a, what a humiliation. What, a, what an outrage. It's one thing to be poor, but to exhibit your poverty for all to see, it makes your ears burn red. This family must go find a rock and hide under it. That's just the way it is. And the law courts, to run out of wine at your wedding in our part of the country, it leaves you open to lawsuits. What kind of future would this new couple have? Well, thankfully, word had not gotten out very far before Mary of Nazareth found out. She was there with her boys, with Jesus and James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and some of their friends and relations. They're well-known and loved by many of us, so of course they were invited along to help us celebrate. When Mary heard, she's always a tender heart, and, and, and she was just petrified for this young bride and groom. And so she quickly went and she told her firstborn, Jesus. Since Mary's husband, Joseph, had died, she had, she had learned to rely on her eldest son. But what could he do? Mary's family had, had few means, a few savings to help. And, and Jesus said as much, ma'am, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His hour had not yet come? I, I was standing there. I heard him say it. I, I wondered what he meant. Did, did he expect to go on to bigger and better things, to, uh, to grow wealthy later in life? Well, his hour had not yet come, that's for sure. Then Mary turned to me, to me, and to my fellow servants. Do what he tells you, she ordered. And then she walked away. That was it. A Jewish mother, perhaps? Uh, refusing to take her son's no for an answer? Or did she know something else? Something that, that we didn't suspect yet? Well, Jesus took her up on her, her second request, and, and he did tell us what to do, but, but it was strange. He, he looked around, and, and he pointed to some stone water jars, 
Six of them, big ones, almost as tall as a man, the, the kind we use for washing. According to the Torah, our scriptures, we as God's clean people are to wash ourselves, our, our utensils and bowls. We, we clean them, we, we purify them. It's God's command to us. We are holy people. Jesus told us to fill them up, all six. What needed to be cleansed? I, we didn't know. But we filled the jars, we filled them right to the brim. It was no easy task, 150 gallons bucket by bucket from the well. It took quite some time. We were perspiring by the time we were done. Well, we reported to Jesus when we had finished, and, and, and what Jesus said next was even more surprising. In fact, it was risky for us. But Mary had been emphatic, and so we listened to him. He said, now draw some out and give it to the master who's hosting the banquet. Now, I was confused. Draw some what out? Draw it out from where? From the water jars? From the well? I didn't know. But, but Jesus clarified, and, and we did it. We drew some out, and we gave it to the master. Now, don't think I'm crazy. But that water, it turned into wine. It, it did. I, I tell you no lie. In fact, when, when the banquet master tried it, he said it was the best wine of the whole party. Normally, we serve the good wine first, right? And, and then when the guests have had too much to drink, we slip in the cheaper wine. Everybody does it. But, but no, the master said to Matthias, the groom, you have saved the best till now. Matthias was confused and very relieved. A minute ago, there had been no wine. Disaster. But now there was plenty of excellent wine. Who brought it in? I couldn't wait to try some. I did, and it was good wine. It was excellent wine. But then I had to slap myself. Oh, wait a minute. Get your mind off the wine. You and your fellow servants are the only one who knows where this wine came from. It came from Jesus, from Mary's son. Who is this guy? How does he turn water into wine? What can this mean? Well, those are the questions we want to consider this morning together as we look at this story in John 2. John's gospel tells us, this was the first of Jesus' signs by which he began to reveal his glory. And as a result, his followers believed in him. John likes this word sign. John, in his gospel, rarely uses the word miracle because while John certainly doesn't want to diminish the, the, uh, how powerfully miraculous Jesus' miracles are, John wants us to see through them and beyond them to what they reveal about who Jesus is and why Jesus came. And so in John's gospel, we are to view Jesus' miracles, and there are seven of them. There are seven signs. We're to view them on two levels. First, on the level of, of what Jesus did. And then second, on the level of what that reveals and represents about Jesus himself and what he's come to do. So we've already begun to look at the story on the first level. Jesus was at a party. In fact, he went to a lot of parties, didn't he? He, was, uh, he went to enough parties that he got accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. 
Jesus evidently wasn't a killjoy. He evidently knew how to have a good time. And and while Jesus was at this party, the, the unthinkable happened. The bridegroom ran out of wine. In that culture, a shame-based culture, this was absolutely disastrous. It was like going bankrupt or having your house foreclosed on in our culture. And when this disaster strikes, Jesus' mother Mary turns to Jesus for help. According to John, Jesus hasn't done any miracles yet. And yet Mary must have known that Jesus was resourceful. But Jesus kind of brushes Mary off, he, not disrespectfully, to call your um, mother woman or dear woman, as uh, the version was read this morning. It wasn't rude in that culture. It was more like ma'am. Now that Jesus' ministry has begun, he can't be there to cater to Mary's will as mother. No, he must now give his sole allegiance to the will of his heavenly father. And so she's no longer dear mother, she's woman, ma'am. Well, if Mary can't prevail upon her son as mother, she does the next best thing. She, She trusts him enough as a believer to tell the servants to do whatever Jesus says. And I wonder what she thought he'd do. Well, Jesus has them fill up the six stone water jars, and then he tells them to draw some out. Now, I've heard this story my whole life, and I'd always assumed that the servants drew the water turned to wine out of the water jars. But in preparing for this message, I discovered that in the original language, the Greek, it's not that clear. We actually don't know whether they drew it from the full water jars or whether they drew it from the well after they had filled up the water jars. It's ambiguous. But either way, somewhere along the way, this plain water turns into the best wine of the whole party. And the bridegroom and his family are saved from utter disaster, and the wedding party can go on. Wedding parties went on for seven days back then. They knew how to party. And and everyone who who finds out what has happened to, to salvage this wedding party is no doubt amazed at this powerful miracle that Jesus does And Jesus' followers who are there with him at the party, they put their faith in Jesus. But there's more to the story than just that, because this miracle is a sign. Jesus, or John says, that that it's a sign that reveals Jesus' glory. And, And you can be sure that that glory has to do with more than just the power to do a really neat and useful party trick. So let's see if we can read the story at the second level now and see what else this sign is trying to tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to bring. Isn't it interesting that the first act of Jesus' public ministry is to attend a wedding? We have already seen last Sunday in the opening verses of John that that Dave Deal looked at with us that Jesus is more than just a man. He's He's the eternal word who has always, from eternity past, been with God and and also at the same time has always been God. And now this divine word has come down to earth from heaven and he begins his mission, his, his ministry in the world. And where does he show up first but at a wedding? Something festive is about to happen 
on a much bigger scale than just this village wedding in a little town called Cana of Galilee. And if you continue reading the Gospel of John, you'll discover that the first section of John's Gospel goes from chapter 2, where we just began reading, down to chapter 4. And along the way in chapter 3, John the Baptist's followers get in an argument with a Jew about, of all things, ceremonial washing. Interesting. And it's in that context in chapter 3 that Jesus will declare himself the true bridegroom who has now come for his bride. And so his bride can now rejoice and celebrate that her bridegroom has come. And then in chapter 4, this first section of John ends with, with a woman who comes to Jacob's well with her water jar, same word as in John 2, with her water jar to draw some water. Now, if you know anything about wells, especially wells in the time of Jacob, then you know that, that godly men had a habit of finding their brides at wells. And sure enough, Jesus gets talking to this woman, a Samaritan woman, and, and she doesn't have six water jars like the wedding in Cana, but she has had six men in her life. Five husbands, and the, woman she, the man she has now is not her husband. So before she meets Jesus, she's had six other men. And, and before the story is done, Jesus becomes her bridegroom. She accepts Jesus as her Messiah. Are you catching some of the echoes and the themes that are going on here? John is a masterful writer. And John is trying to communicate that something big, something to do with a much more significant wedding is going on here. Let's see what our story this morning can tell us about that. Notice that John is careful to tell us that this wedding happens on the seventh day. Look with me if we start in chapter 1, right after the prologue, which introduces the gospel. Notice in verse 19 where the story actually begins, John the Baptist is testifying about who Jesus is. And then in verse 29, as Jesus begins gathering followers, we read the next day. That's day 2. Then in verse 35, the next day again. That's day 3. Then in verse 43, the next day again. That's day 4. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, John tells us three days later, Jesus goes to a wedding. Three days, day 5, day 6, day 7. Jesus goes to a wedding on the seventh day. Now remember how John's gospel begins. In the beginning was the word, and through him all things were made. That's creation language. And now, just like the first creation story, which opens the Bible, now we have a new seven days. And on the seventh day, the final one, the climactic day, Jesus begins to reveal his glory. Something big is happening. Something of cosmic importance, something to do with a new creation. Added to that, Jesus goes to this wedding and he finds six stone water jars. You'll find again and again in John's gospel that John doesn't waste a single detail. Six jars, he tells us. Six is one less than seven. It's, it's one less than complete and perfect, which is what seven is. Six is the, the sorry, nice try number, the not, almost but not quite number. Six is, is like pulling the handle on a slot machine and the first dial comes up, seven. And the second dial comes up, seven. And the third dial, 
is coming up. What is it? it? It almost clicks over to seven, but no, it stops just short. Game over. That's the number six in the Bible. Six stone water jars, the kind used for ceremonial washing. The religion exemplified in ceremonial washing has come up short. To put it another way, this religion is a wedding that's run out of wine. We've got a dire spiritual crisis going on here. Old Testament religion can only get you so far. It was good in as far as it went, but, but ultimately it, it doesn't cut it. It, it, it falls short. It, it comes up dead and as a dead end, and it, it winds up dead, all just left to itself. And if we're honest, this is a huge crisis. The servants fill the, the six stone water jars all the way full, but they're worth nothing at a wedding until... Enter Jesus on the seventh day, and he transforms the whole situation. Or if the servants actually draw the water that turns to wine from the well and not from the water jars, then, then you could think of it this way. It's only after all six of the ceremonial washing jars have been filled to the brim, it's only after Jesus has fulfilled all that the Old Testament religion required that now Jesus can start anew and can make the new wine flow. Are you beginning to understand the sign? Religion can only get you so far, and it can never get you far enough. These, these stone water jars represent ritual to, to make you purified, to make you holy, uh, symbolic acts to get right with God. And they were useful. They served their purpose. But, but ultimately, they fell short. They took you as far as they could, but they could only get you to six. And it was still plain water at a wedding celebration which called for wine. Something more was needed. And just in time, on the seventh day, Jesus came to bring it. He filled and he fulfilled all that Old Testament religion was supposed to be. And then he utterly exceeded and surpassed it. God has indeed saved his best for last. And in the coming of Jesus, God has given us his best. In Jesus, God is doing a new and a more glorious thing. With Jesus, we have the choicest of wine. Now let's talk about wine. What does wine represent elsewhere in the New Testament? Jesus' blood, right? At the Last Supper, Jesus takes the bread and he says, this is my body. Then after supper, he takes the cup of wine and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The wine represents Jesus' own blood shed for us on the cross. Well, you may have noticed in John's gospel, we don't have the story of the Last Supper. But we do have, in John 6, we do have the story of Jesus feeding bread to 5,000 people. And, and there, in the context of that story, Jesus tells us that he is the bread who's come down from heaven and that we must eat his body to have this bread. 
And here in John 2, we have this story which is flooded with wine. And what does Jesus say when, when Mary comes to him and says they have no more wine? He says, my hour has not yet come. And what's Jesus' hour in John's gospel? It's his death on the cross. Jesus, they have no more wine. Ma'am, why do you involve me? It's not time for me to shed my blood yet. Do you see it? The wine, it's Jesus' blood. It's shed for us on the cross to forgive our sins, to, to secure an everlasting covenant between God and us. And more than that, to give us joy and gladness, to, to, to throw us a party. In Jesus, God is throwing us a party. You know that the prophets foretold that in the Messianic age when the Messiah came, God would make wine flow in abundance. Listen to Joel 3.18, for example. In that day, the mountains will drip with new wine, Joel prophesies. Now that's a party. That's abundance. That's joy. So how do you feel about wine? On, on a literal level, do you prefer plain water or do you prefer choice wine? Now, some of you no doubt don't like the taste of wine or for good reasons you don't drink alcohol. Americans haven't been known to handle their alcohol responsibly. And so American Christians have rightly laid off alcohol, some more strictly than others. But American Christians, that is. <laughs> um, but Jesus wasn't an American Christian. And he didn't live in a teetotaling religious culture. So let's not miss out on what John is saying here. Let's not miss the sign. Back in Jesus' day, it was hard to get pure water. And if you've traveled to the developing world, then you know what water, the local water can do to your stomach. And so water needed to be boiled, which required a lot of effort. It required a fire. It was hard work. And, and so people preferred wine when they had access to it. But their wine wasn't as strong as ours. It was diluted um, until the alcohol content was more like a glass of beer or maybe even a little weaker than that. And this made for a flavorful drink. It was uh, safe to drink. The alcohol sanitized the added water. And, and let's be honest, drinking a lot of this wine could still give you a buzz. In fact, again, notice what the master of the banquet says in verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. Later, as I said, Jesus will be accused of being a drunkard because he came eating and drinking. In fact, Psalm 104 celebrates God for making wine, which gladdens the heart, John, or Psalm 104 says. Now hear me carefully. I'm not suggesting that Jesus got drunk or that we should drink too much. The Bible clearly warns us against not getting drunk, and, and some of us who have a problem with alcohol or who are un underage should never touch a drop. But however comfortable or uncomfortable some of us may find it, the Bible seems quite comfortable with a good party made all the more festive with plenty of wine for those who drink legally and responsibly. And so when you hear wine, regardless of where you're at personally with this issue, for the sake of hearing John's message, hear or, or think party. Think fun, think celebration, think happy hearts and good food and dear friends. 
I'll never forget an experience I had of this. I had a student when I was teaching in Budapest, Hungary, whose family had a, uh, uh, some property in the countryside, and they planted a, a small vineyard on a hillside there. And when it was time um, for the vintage, for the grape harvest, they invited me along. My student invited me along for the day. And uh, we arrived there early in the morning. There were various relatives and, and uh, friends and neighbors and it was a beautiful autumn day, and I got to accompany my student and his, his father and some of the uncles as, as we went up into the, the vineyard, and they picked the grapes. They knew which ones were the best ones that they wanted, and, and we filled them in these tubs that were on our backs, and then we hiked them back down the hillside to the wine press where the juice was squeezed, uh, squeezed out and put in, in uh, oaken barrels. Meanwhile, some of the ladies had, had made a fire, and they had this big black iron pot, and all day they were slow cooking this incredible Hungarian goulash over the fire. And after the grapes were all harvested, we tapped uh, last year's wine, and uh, everyone had their first taste. And then they sat around the fire eating this goulash and this fresh bread and this wine, and, and just laughing and having good conversation and celebrating another year's harvest. That's the sort of thing that wine meant to people in Jesus' day in an agricultural society of that day. And John is saying that, that the wine that Jesus made for a wedding in Cana is a sign of, of the abundant choice wine that Jesus came to bring on a whole other level. Jesus is about so much more than, than just the plain water of religious rules and obligations. So here's the question for us. Is your religion like plain water? Or have you tasted the choice wine? Do you know Jesus like the scripture presents him here, revealing his glory at, at a wedding celebration, turning the water of plain religion into abundant choice wine, the best wine? For thousands of years, water was all that God's people had had. But then in the fullness of time, on the seventh day, Jesus came, bringing us choice wine. God has indeed saved his best for last. And we're privileged to live at a time in history when we can get in on it. It's being offered to us. We have been invited to the wedding banquet where the choicest wine is being served. Do you know the winemaker? Have you tasted his wine? And if you have, then why in the world would you want to go back to water? You know, Rudolf Brankowski, who's an artist from the Czech Republic, he once said, Jesus changed water into wine and Christians tend to turn it back into water. Have you lost the wonder of who Jesus is and what he came to bring? Have you let your religion distract you from Jesus when it should be leading you closer in to him? May this passage help us to see Jesus' glory again. May it help us to taste and to see that the Lord is good, that Jesus is delightful and that he comes to bring delight. 
You know, I grew up in a family which was a study in contrasts. My um, dad's side of the family were from the Midwest, and they were always working hard. My grandfather would come to visit us just so he could help my dad work on the house. And I remember one big family reunion we had, and, and, and it, it involved putting a new roof on my grandfather's barn. There was always so much work to do, and there was never any time to waste. My mom's side of the family, on the other hand, was from Queens, and they knew how to throw a party. <laughs> and, and they didn't need much of an excuse either. Just having a few family members over was enough to merit a celebration, and there were subs, and there was ziti, and there were lots of goodies that my grandmother baked and aunts and uncles baked. And there was joking, and there were games, and, and, and there was sometimes singing and dancing, and yes, wine. And if those were the two sides of your family... Then, then which side of the family would you want Jesus to find you with on the day that he came back? You know, we're a hardworking bunch here in Westchester and Putnam counties. We're, we're diligent. We're serious. And, and I can be that way, too. Sometimes I think I'm a little more like my dad than like my mom, although I've got both sides. But, but that hardworking seriousness, that can rub off on our religion. And I know that that I can see Jesus through that lens. And there's certainly a place for working hard. There's certainly a place for being diligent, especially when it comes to the things of God. But that's not the Jesus we see here revealing God's glory. Here in today's text, we see a Jesus who throws a party. A Jesus who brings joy and celebration into our lives. A Jesus who gladdens our hearts, who brings laughter and delight. A Jesus whose very presence is like choice wine. Do you know Jesus like that? Do you want to know him that way? It's his glory. It's him showing us what God is like. It's what made his disciples believe in him. So here's my challenge for us this morning. It's going to be in two parts. We'll have the first part now. We'll have the second part after we sing the closing hymn. So first, take a moment of quiet. You can close your eyes if you want. In your heart, try to look at Jesus. Try to see him at a wedding, a wedding that's become a crisis. This wedding is, is your religion. It's, it's your life without Jesus. It's out of wine. It's a dire tragedy. See the other people's faces. Feel the dread, the tension, the disappointment. And now see Jesus turning the simplest water into the choicest wine. See it overflow. See faces brighten. See the party resume again. Drink deeply on every level. Feel the relief, the wonder, the joy the delight. And lastly, take a minute now, silently, if you're willing, 
to invite Jesus to be that for you and for our church. And I'll close this in a moment. Jesus, may we see you and know you in your glory. Amen.